This morning's reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, starting at verse 19. And that can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1179. Page 1179, Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Good morning. Good morning and welcome again to Holy Trinity this morning. My name is Steve Conacher and I'm the youth pastor here. And a bit of context... We have been reading through this book of Philippians over the past few weeks here in the morning services. And uh, it's not really a book, it's really a letter from Paul, the apostle, the legend, to uh, Philippi, which is a church in northeastern Greece. I didn't know that, but Google Maps told me, so that's probably true. Uh, And we've had, so far, we've had this, in chapter two, we've had this arching, incredible uh, image, poetry about Jesus and how he didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped. It's ripe for the songwriters, that section. It's incredible. And then we've had this section about how um, Paul says, do not grumble, don't complain, but shine like stars as you hold out the word of life. Again, it's ripe, especially for the action songwriters, you know, shine. It works. It works. And now we hit this bit. We've had amazing poetry We've had incredible teaching, and now we have travel plans about Timothy and Epaphroditus. No one's going to write songs about this section. Epaphroditus is really hard to rhyme, and his name sounds a bit like an unfortunate skin condition. What are we supposed to do with this? It's a bit like if you go to uh, a modern art gallery and you're like me and you don't know very much and you wander around and you see a work of art on the wall which is great and you can appreciate it and there's some other work that you think is cool and then you see the sculpture 
of, made out of nose hair and marmite or something. And you think, why is this here? I'm sure there's a reason, but why, why is this here? What am I supposed to do with this? Often when we read the Bible, we expect it to do one of two things. We think either it's going to teach me something about God or it's going to teach me something about what I should do. Either it's going to be theology or it's going to be pragmatic. And probably we lean towards one of the two. But the thing is, it's not a terrible way to read the Bible. But if we try and read this passage like that in a simple way, we get stuck pretty quickly. It just doesn't say very much about God. Jesus gets a mention a few times, which is always a good sign. But the, the only thing we learn directly about God is that he had mercy on Epaphroditus, which is amazing, but it doesn't say very much. Also, if we look and we think it's going to tell me something to do, there aren't really many commands in this passage. In fact, I, there's only really one. In verse 29, this one command I'm going to hold on to, it says, welcome Epaphroditus in the Lord with great joy. So welcome Epaphroditus. <laughs> so good to see you. <laughs> and, and honor men like him, okay, which we could, we could hold on to that. But this passage, why is it here? What are we supposed to do with it? I think there is something quite important that we can easily forget. It's very easy for us sometimes to read the Bible a bit like it's a bit like a fantasy novel, a bit like it's speaking about a world with different parameters, characters which are unlike us, superhuman in some way, from another dimension. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is the story of God and creation and the interaction between the two, told mostly through the lives of real people. Lives of real people, just like you, just like me. Humans who got confused and messed up and got it right sometimes and sinned and did good stuff and loved and lost and all of this. The Bible speaks about real lives. And so it speaks a message for real lives. Timothy and Epaphroditus, these are not characters from another universe that we can't relate to. They're real people. And as we think about their real lives as Christians, we can reflect on our own lives and hopefully learn a few things. So let me pray for us as we do that for a few moments today. Father God, thank you that you are here with us this morning. Thank you for the examples of these two men that we're going to look at. And we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would speak a real message for us today through these lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think the first thing that Timothy and Epaphroditus can show us uh, is that the Christian life is really possible. The Christian life is really possible. Like I said earlier, I'm the youth pastor at this church, and one of the joys I get as youth pastor is that I get to um, keep my finger on the pulse of youth culture. That's kind of ironic, really, because... Anyway, um, I found this week uh, a list online from thetop10s.com, a reputable website, um, of the top 10 best role models for kids 
according to the general public. Uh, this was a vote carried out in the UK and the US of parents. The tenth on the list of top role models for our kids was Steve Jobs, former CEO of Apple. One of the great things about this website was that it had little comments written by teenagers underneath each of the role models. So it had Steve Jobs and it had, yeah, he was bold, but he still went from nothing to rich. Just give some of us in here some hope. Um, others on the list included Barack Obama, J.K. Rowling, Ariana Grande, Selena Gomez. Have I lost you yet? Um, number two on the list of top role models for our children was Jesus. Number two. Which I took as semi-encouraging until I read, read the comment underneath his name which said, He wears sandals. It's totally cool. <laughs> do you think some people have completely missed the point? Sometimes I do. Number one, the top role model for children today, according to the general public, was, brace yourselves, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, country pop singer-songwriter, famous for breakup songs like, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. And we are never, ever, ever getting back together which is a kind of post-Brexit slogan potential. Uh, <laughs> this, this apparently is what we, the general public, want our children to be like. Who would be in your top 10? Okay, I think we need to rewrite this list. Who would be in your top 10 role models for our children? Who would you put as role models for yourself? I'm not sure we grow out of needing them. I'm not sure we grow out of needing them. Those people slightly further ahead than us slightly better at the job. Maybe in this context, we think people slightly kinder, people who seem to have a slightly better relationship with God. Who are our role models? I start with this idea of role models because I think that's exactly how Timothy and Epaphroditus are presented to us in this passage. They are role models for us. So um, if you haven't got your Bible open, please do. It's page 1179, Philippians 2, starting at verse 19. And we're going to take a look at Timothy first as a role model, as an example for us that the Christian life is possible. So verse 19, Paul starts off. He says to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Which sounds a bit like when your parents send you a message at uni and they say something like, we can't wait to see you soon so that we can be really, ex you know, we're really happy to see the way that you're working hard and how clean your bedroom is and nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sort your life out. Um, uh, but that's not what's going on here. If we look back at the letter in chapter one, verse six, Paul, Paul is excited about the Philippians, not because he thinks they're going to sort themselves out, but because he is confident that God is going to carry on the good work that he is doing there. But Paul won't go himself because he's in prison, which is limiting. And so instead, he sends Timothy. Why does he send Timothy? Verse 20. I have no one else like him. Imagine if someone who you consider to be a key leader said that about you. Your heart would just swell. I have no one else like Timothy. What is it that makes Timothy so unique? Why is he so special? Second half of verse 20. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare. These words are very, very similar to what Paul writes at the start of chapter 2 in his arching incredible poetry bit. 
he writes to the Philippians, if you've got any encouragement from being united to Christ, dot, 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 in verse 4, each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. And what does Timothy do? He takes a genuine interest in the lives of others. He is a living example that what Paul has just been talking about is possible. It is possible to take a genuine interest in others. Verse 21 spells out why we need this kind of role model. Paul says, For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Selfishness is common. Unselfishness is rare. It's so rare. I was in uh, Waitrose the other day, as you do, and uh, there was an older lady with a trolley full of shopping at the front of the queue, and I was a bit further back. She was quite slow. And um, the queue was getting a bit impatient, and then uh, the lad behind her said, excuse me, would you mind if I gave you a hand? He said it kindly, he didn't say it impatiently. Would you mind if I gave you a hand with the shopping? So she said, that would be lovely, thank you. So he helped her unload her shopping, he helped her load it back in. At the end, he gave her a big smile, and she pushed her trolley off, and everyone's hearts were warmed. The cashier said, after she'd left, I've been working here for a couple of years. I have never seen anyone help someone out like that before. Usually people just stand there impatiently. Selfishness is so common. Unselfishness is so rare. And so we can come to expect over time, we can come to expect selfishness of other people, and we can come to expect it of ourselves. We lower the bar. We think there's just no way that I can live up to the standard that Jesus would hold me to. I just can't do it. It doesn't seem to be happening. I just can't be Christian enough. But when we hear that there is a living, breathing example of someone who lived this, someone who didn't just look out for his own interest, but took a genuine interest in the lives of others. We have to think twice. We have to think, hang on, this is possible. Unselfishness is possible. It's true of other things. Generosity in the way the Bible talks about is possible. Self-control in the way that this book calls us to is possible. Love is really possible. And it's not just Timothy who proves this. You know, when I was a, a young Christian, I benefited so much from reading Christian biographies by people like Jackie Pullinger and uh, Brother Andrew, David Wilkerson. They taught me what to aim for, what to expect. This Christian life is possible. It's really possible. I labor this point because I think we forget it. I think we begin to think things out there, we just can't do them, they're just not possible for us. But they are. They really are. We look back at these characters in the Bible and Christians throughout history and we see this life can be lived. It can be lived. And the great thing is that what these people have in common isn't anything that sets them, up, sets them apart as exceptional people. They're not exceptionally skilled. It's because of the power of God to change a life that it's possible. It's because of the power of God to change a life. It's because of the salvation of Jesus who died and rose for us. It's because of the love of the Holy Spirit that flows through us. It is possible for every single one of us to live this life. It is possible. 
So the first thing is that Timothy and Epaphroditus, they show us this Christian life is possible. But the second thing is that they show us that it's possible together. It is possible together. I don't know if anyone watched the latest David Attenborough show, Dynasties. Did anyone else watch this show? It was so emotional. I shed many a manly tear at this show. Um, and the one episode that gave me particular heart-wrenching moments was the one about the emperor penguins. Oh my gosh. These penguins, they, they brave Antarctic winters and blizzards together. And the way they do it, the only way it's possible is that they, they form a massive huddle where they sort of all lean on each other. And if you're in the middle, you're like, I've made it. I'm going to keep living. And the ones on the outside, they have to sort of rotate around so they, they don't always freeze. And it's an incredible picture. And when we look at the lives of the first Christians, you can learn a lot from these shows. When we look at the lives of the first Christians, this is exactly the kind of image we see. A group which stuck close together. Perhaps not so defensively and helplessly, but nonetheless sticking together, requiring the support of one another. The Christian life is really possible, but it's possible together. It's possible together. Even Paul models this. Paul, who sometimes we think, oh, he's genius, you know, leader, can't really relate to him all the time. But over and over again, when we read his letters, we hear him mentioning his friends. Over and over again. Have you heard about my friend Timothy? My friend Epaphroditus? And so on. In almost all of his letters. Paul needed a spiritual family. He needed to be together. And so do we. Let's look at the example of Epaphroditus. It starts in verse 25. The background here, which you've already mentioned, is that Paul, Paul was in a pickle. Paul was stuck in prison in Rome. And in those days, you weren't given food or supplies in prison. You had to get them from elsewhere. So the Philippians, they'd heard about what was going on with Paul. They'd heard that he was in trouble. And so they'd done a whip round and done a little fundraising drive. And they'd raised enough for a gift. And there's, who's going to send this gift? Who's going to take it to Paul? Paphroditus presumably goes, I'll do it. And so he takes the gift along to Paul. It's a long journey, remember, northeastern Greece to Rome, quite a long way uh, if you can't fly um, or if you're flying Ryanair. And, um, and uh, he, he, he makes this journey, Epaphroditus, but we read in the passage that he got so ill, he nearly died. Don't know if that was on the journey or after he got there. Somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus got so ill, he nearly died. But he stuck at his mission. He did not give up. And he made it. And it says, uh, verse 27, God had mercy on him, which we can take to mean God healed him. God made him better. As an aside, we can notice again how Epaphroditus models for us something we've just read about. Um, in chapter 2, last week, Rupert spoke about this, how we're called not to grumble, not to complain, but to shine like stars. Epaphroditus, you know, if you're so ill you nearly died, you might forgive someone for grumbling. But he doesn't. It says Epaphroditus' greatest worry is his church back home. That's his greatest worry. It's mind-blowing. They'd heard about the fact he was ill, but they hadn't heard that he got better. So we can assume that they're sitting there going, ah, we might have killed this guy by sending him to Rome. It's going to look really bad on our missions board or something. Um, 
and that's what he's most worried about. He wants them to know that he's okay. What an amazing example of not grumbling or complaining, but shining like stars. It's possible. But really what Epaphroditus shows us is that this Christian life is possible together. Look at the metaphors that Paul uses to describe his friendship in verse 25. Three things he says about Epaphroditus. He's my brother, my family, part of the same family of God. He's my fellow worker. We strive together to see God's kingdom come. He's my fellow soldier. We fight together, not with violence against people, but with prayer, with worship, with obedience, against sin, against evil, against injustice in ourselves and in our world. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. This is the kind of guy Epaphroditus is. Here's the question for us. I know we know this, some of us. We know that the Christian life was possible together. But I find, I don't know if you find this, sometimes it's easy to class church relationships as fellowship, which is kind of a Christian-y word. And it's easy for us to make that word mean less than friendship. It means, fellowship means I can kind of hold someone else at arm's length. Or it means I don't really have to share what's going on with them, but we're sort of part of the same organization. If it means that, we might have missed the point. We look at Epaphroditus' example and we see we're not called to be like that. We're called to be friends. Fellowship means fellow workers, fellow soldiers, brothers and sisters. People working together, fighting together for a common cause, praying for each other. So the challenge for us is who are we called today to be a sister or a brother to, to work alongside, to fight with? Because if this Christian life is going to be possible for us, it's going to happen together as friends. Here's a few things it might mean from my experience. Getting together with a couple of friends once in a while, once a month, once a fortnight, to sit down, to chat, to pray. The best way to do this for us might be to bite the bullet and commit every week to going to a home group or a small group. I cannot recommend that highly enough. This Christian life is possible. It's going to happen together. Get into a home group or a small group. Bite the bullet. Pay the babysitter or whatever it requires and be there for your brothers and sisters, for your fellow workers, for your fellow soldiers. You need them and they need you. For some of us, this means that we're asked by God to stop trying to be a lone wolf for Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to be a lone wolf. He wants you to be a sheep. He wants you to be a sheep, to be part of the flock. For some of us, what it means is we're going to stick at relationships. Our culture expects us to click in relationships. Find people with similar hobbies at a similar stage of life and go to football matches together or something. Our culture expects us to, to click. The Bible expects, expects us to stick. I've really made myself a tongue twister here. <laughs> stick, stick. Don't click, stick. We commit. We, commitment Sunday is coming up. One of the commitments we make as a church is we commit to each other. Not just because we happen to share a hobby or a stage of life, but because that's what the Bible calls us to do, because we're brothers and sisters, fellow workers, fellow soldiers. This Christian life is possible, but it's possible together. 
as we draw to a close, we remember something important. Something we sung about earlier, actually. We remember that to be a good friend, you need a good friend. Jesus said the highest expression of love we can ever give someone isn't a rose on Valentine's Day. It's not a cheeky Instagram selfie. But it's to lay down our lives for our friends. But to be a good friend like that, we need a good friend like that. And that's why he did it for us. That's why he said, you're my friends, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. He is the ultimate friend for us. When we come back to him, when we receive his friendship, when we remember, I am a friend of God, then we're released into our churches and into our worlds to be brothers and sisters, to be fellow workers, to be fellow soldiers. We need this HT. This is for us. We are called to be God's church, to be united, to make this life possible together, not by our strength, but by his as we are together. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the example of these two men. Thank you that living this Christian life is actually possible, not by our strength, but by yours. Thank you for the gift of one another that you say it's possible together. Lord, some of us here, we know that we feel lonely, we feel left out. We feel lacking in friends. God, we ask that you provide friends, you provide Christian community, Christian family, Christian fellowship for us, real fellowship. Others of us, we know that we are called to people and we need the courage to go do it. We need your love to fill us so we can go do it. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see this life made possible. Make you make it happen through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to carry on with our prayers.